Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy, where we use real-world examples about the nuance and intersections of this work by focusing in on my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts, the second largest city in New England. We are back with our series focused on equity-based housing solutions, and this week we are talking with Nikki Bell and Desiree Demos from Living in Freedom Together, also known as LIFT, an organization that serves survivors of commercial sexual exploitation and women and others in our community impacted by the sex trade. I think it is important to disclose to our listeners that I am on the board of LIFT, as well as support a variety of LIFT's initiatives through Action by Design. This is the Public Hearing Podcast. Desiree Demos is the Senior Director of Community-Based Programs for Lyft. Her own lived experience and passion for advocacy work led her to join Lyft's mission to end the sex trade. Desiree was instrumental in the opening of Harbor, Lyft's zero-barrier maximum vulnerability shelter for survivors of the sex trade experiencing homelessness due to co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders. Harbor stands for Healthcare, Advocacy, Room, Board, Outreach, and Rehousing. As a survivor of gender-based violence herself, she's committed to using her own lived experiences to promote changes in systems that continually oppress and victimize women. Desiree is determined to remove stigmas and barriers that prevent exploited and substance-dependent women from accessing the support they need from our community by building trauma-informed programming and spaces designed to provide continued exiting support for survivors. Nikki Bell is the founder and CEO of Lyft and created the organization as a way to provide access to critical resources and programming to women actively engaged in systems of prostitution, for she herself knew what it was like to be a survivor. Led by and designed by survivors, Lyft is guided by a grounding principle of unconditional support and approaches program participants with unconditional positive regard. Lyft Lyft services include a comprehensive suite of programs that participants can access in a zero-barrier model and benefit from resources tailored to their unique needs, including case management services, basic needs, housing, health services, and legal support. She has led the charge to break down barriers and stigma for this marginalized population and inspires leaders in the Worcester community and beyond. She has been honored by organizations from across the country, including the Women Women in Criminal Justice Conference and the Novo Foundation for her leadership and advocacy work. Lyft has also been hailed as leading the nation in survivor representation and advocacy by Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito. Welcome, Nikki and Desiree. Uh, Impressive resumes, backgrounds. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else either of you would like to briefly add about yourselves for our listeners as we dive into our conversation today about equity-based housing solutions? Sure. Um, For me, I think it's important for folks to understand, you know, my bio identifies me as a survivor, but also as a woman in long-term recovery and also someone who experienced homelessness um, in the city of Worcester for over a decade. Thank you, Nikki. Desiree, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I, too, um have lived experience as a, a survivor and also um, chronic homelessness, um, many years um, of substance use and um, incarcerations, um, and long-term recovery, four years. Well, thank you both so much for being here. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, where we're exploring equity-based housing solutions. So I'm obviously very familiar with Lyft and the incredible work that you do as an organization. And so as we talk about housing and how that specifically intersects with the folks that you work with in the organization, I want to provide some opportunity to talk about how you define some of the terms that are used um, that I kind of mentioned in the bio that I think 
many famous, uh, listeners might not be familiar with. And so maybe we can start really looking at Harbor as a, as a model. Um, and there are two terms that really stood out to me when I started working with Lyft as an organization that I think everyone needs to start incorporating into their language, which is unconditional positive regard and zero barrier access. So I'll let either of you kind of take the, take the lead on talking about that. Sure. Um, so unconditional positive regard is the foundation of every everything that we do at Harbor. Um, a lot of times, you know, people seek um, treatment and services at other places, and after four or five times, you know, they're getting that look like, oh, uh, you know what I mean, you're here again. Um, so we treat everybody um, the same regardless. Um, so no matter what you say, what you do, um, the last interaction, every time you come, like, I'm happy to see you. Um, so that that's how, how we do how we do everything at Harbor and with Lyft. Um and that's such, that's such an important thing, I think, for people to hear because it sounds so simple, but like the action and like the, um, I we were before we kind of came on mic, we were talking a little bit about processes, right? And how processes can sometimes come in the way of providing support, right? And so that model of like having that as like a core tenant of the organization, I imagine like enables folks from every role in, in the organization to be able to say, this is our value system. And so this is how I'm able to make a decision about providing service to somebody. Yeah. So frequently it's like, you know, even with, with housing programs or substance use programs or whatever, how, whatever service you're accessing, um, be that from, you know, food stamps and, and EBT services all the way to shelter services. So often we take, you know, as providers, like, um, things personal that like the folks that are showing up to access our support do, right? Or, you know, and, and it could be from calling somebody a name there or, you know, maybe acting aggressively. But we don't think about, you know, the reality is that is, it's it's not about us, right? And so, you know, I can just think back to my own experiences of like accessing the shelter and maybe using in the bathroom or having an overdose. And their response to that is to like kick me out and like ban me for 30 days, right? So it's like, so now I'm not going to the hospital. I've just overdosed. And now I'm outside the shelter with all my belongings at risk for even more, even at risk for overdose again um, and significant violence, right? And so <clears throat> it's just kind of this reminder that like we show up for people no matter where they're at, no matter how they're treating us, right? It's about us showing up for them and essentially like, what can I do for you right now? Like that is helpful, right? So often I think people are like, oh, it's, you know, such a process or you have to, you know, fill out this form or in order to have like engagement with somebody. And it's not, it's meeting the need that they're presenting in that moment and showing unconditional kindness and positive regard for the human that is in front of you, regardless of how they are treating you. Right. Um, and, 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 and if we're honest, like most of that response or anger and hostility is a trauma response, right? And it's a defense mechanism. And so it's like the fact that we still, you know, as a community, as a world at, at whole, I think, are really talking about trauma in a different way, but then don't know how to put that into practice in our values and our beliefs, right? Um, and our processes. 
And earlier in one of our seasons, we talked to Amy Ebison with Worcester Axe, and she talked about something similar about how trauma-informed processes are so critical, but just naming that and understanding that people's trauma impacts how they are able to show up or how they do show up does not make a trauma-informed process, right? It doesn't mean that staff and clinicians and individuals are trained in how to support a variety of ways in which trauma manifests, which, as we know, is unique to each individual. It is triggered by various, you know, things based on past experience. Um, And I've, in this work, sometimes we can get bogged down in like terminology. And I've been talking to folks about like trauma-informed practices as opposed to healing-centered strategies. And like all of those pieces are so important to talk about, but can also reach into the realm of too academic. And we often, I think, lose the fact that like there are individuals in our community who are being harmed because our institutions are arguing about how to implement solutions like this. And so from as an organization that leads with this values and these principles, what are some of the things that you've learned to allow for the team to kind of adapt to building processes and building structures that enable folks to um, to do these things, recognizing that it's going to be different in each of these interactions? I think that the most important thing is understanding um, that most people that are coming from a place of homelessness are also coming with substance use disorder and they're also coming with mental health. And the important part is that you don't like deny people access to a space because of those things. Um, and so we don't do that at Harbor. We don't. Yeah. Um, we don't say, oh, you know what I mean? You used, um, and so now you can't come here. We're like, hey, so the value system you were talking about earlier, that's the most important part. You know, a lot of shelters have on-site security and they have all these things in plan. Like, we don't have that. We have our value system and the, the participants know the value system and we know, and we all live in the same value system and maybe we don't meet at the same place on it, but as long as we live within that value system, we can be safe. And that that is the the prime thing that keeps Harbor running the way that it does. And I I think that is such a critical component to every culture is a value system, right? Is shared beliefs or at least shared practices that everyone can agree to that are in some cases very like specific, like you don't access this room or are more kind of generalized, like we treat each other with respect and respect can look like this, right? Um, And I think that's so critical and a lot of organizations don't have that definitely in the services like space, but also in their own internal culture, right? So people don't always feel enabled to say like, oh, I'm a, maybe I'm a clinician who has a director and a head and a president and a chain of command, quote unquote, you know, and so I don't know if I'm able to do this thing to support this person, even though I know what that person needs. Um, so Nikki, wondering if you have some thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I think, you know, that's what, you know, we were chatting before, uh, we came on even about like the larger institutions and having these kind of like massive processes and they may have good intent, but can't actually like execute. And, you know, I always say like, I, like, I would prefer you ask forgiveness and permission, right? Because like at the end of the day, like, we're all going to make mistakes, right? We're all human. But if you are doing what you're doing for like the, the human, the survivor that's standing in front of you, like 
even if it wasn't the right thing to do, right? Like we'll talk about that later, but were their needs met and did you treat them with kindness, right? I think it's the biggest piece. Um, but I think it also goes to the way we treat and value. And I know that even in this like most recent election, there's been a lot of talk about like the care economy and how we treat people that are providing care for others, right? Be that teachers up to our mental health and substance use and and homelessness continuum, right? And one of the things, and and you know, dollars aren't everything, right? But it also does matter uh, how you compensate people, and 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 if you value them as human beings, like that are working within your organization too. And I just think about, you know, <clears throat> how typical, like you know, starting salary <laughs> wages for. People that are showing up to meet some of our most vulnerable, marginalized, traumatized communities is like $14 an hour, right? So now you have to work three full-time jobs, like just at, you know, and you're literally on that like cusp of homelessness, just like the folks that you're providing are, are in homelessness, right? And when we don't value people and they're experiencing catastrophic burnout, that then, it like, that is expressed on like directly in the relationships that they have with the people that we're serving, right? And so I think the the culture and values of an organization are directly tied to how they are able to show up for people, right? Um, and it's so like people often separate those things, right? Um, but they are they're tied directly together, and we don't care about the folks in our in our care economy. And the reality is it's because they're typically women. They're typically women of color. Um, and in our substance use treatment world, um, they're typically people in recovery uh, that have uh, Corey, right? Or, you know, and so it's like, again, like we value all of our participants, but we also need to value the people that are colleagues that are working alongside us, right? Um, because that matters. And then it that's how we demonstrate to, to others too, right? Um, that like this work is important and the people that are doing this work is important, just like our participants are important and they can get there one day too. Um, I also wanted to just to like when we're talking about this kind of like zero barrier access um, component, oftentimes we're designing services um, and they're inaccessible to people. And I don't mean inaccessible because of their geographic location, right? I mean in, inaccessible because of the barriers that we 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 design services to keep people out, not invite them in. Mm. Um and you know, I can share a personal experience of like going to the shelter and you know, you had to be in at six, right? And I'm standing outside the door and it's 6.02 p.m. And the guy on the inside is just looking at me, tapping on his watch. And it's like January, right? And it's freezing. And he's like, you're going to have to call the police to get you in, right? And it's wow. like, well, you could just open that door and let mm. me in, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to call the police on myself to escort me in because I had a warrant, right? And so it's like, you know, and these are the spaces that we're saying – you know, are are open to people and they can come in, right? And it's a simple policy of like, okay, it's like, who cares what time they get there, mm -hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, like, is that really important or is it important that they showed up? Right, right. And so like zero, like what we're talking about is like, we all have those value systems that, that we live within and we share with participants. It's also important that we share why. We share the why behind. It's not just like, because we said so. It's like, you can't smoke in here. 
because we don't want you to burn the building down, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's these very simple true, like very agreements, true. right? Yep. Or you can't use drugs in this space because it's illegal and there are no safe consumption sites. When there are, we'll be right there beside you, we right? We will have one. We will have one. <laughs> exactly. Um, but currently, right? Um, and we don't want to get shut down, right? right? So it's like explaining those things, and that makes it so much easier for people to be like, oh, that makes sense, right? I yeah. won't smoke in here, right? <laughs> right. Or, um, and so like eliminating those barriers and also like being transparent with people because like, you know, we shouldn't treat, like most people, there's a lot of adults in our community experiencing homelessness and need access to housing. And they don't get it because they can't access the spaces and pathways to get there, right? And so having a zero barrier access shelter that kind of eliminates some of those barriers to coming in is creating a direct pathway to housing, mm. right? Um, but we separate all of them, right? And I just think it's important for people to understand, like, why it's important to eliminate those barriers and make spaces actually accessible to people. Absolutely. And and I want to talk about that housing pathway as well. And and Desiree, I want to maybe ask you a question about harm reduction as well. Um, so we talked to um, Domenica Perone to kind of kick off this series on housing. And she mentioned kind of briefly um, harm reduction as, as a strategy. And as and you're, you know, mentioning like safe use sites and things which are still illegal, right, and not uh, allowed for, even though we know from data as well as folks with lived experience saying, like, these spaces result in uh, people accessing more support and, you know, pathways to recovery and whatever whatever success looks like for that individual. So maybe talk, uh, if you could, maybe talk a little bit about some of the harm reduction kind of thinking and, like, strategies that go into Harbor and, and um and lifts like general kind of programs. So right now what we don't have safe injection sites, we still want to make sure everybody is safely using the goal is for people to not die. Right. So yes, you cannot use in our bathroom. However, here is some Narcan, right? You know where we are, you know, the phone number, like these are the sports you have. Oh, who's going with you? You know, maybe even at the end of the day, I know, I know where a lot of them go, right? I know where you're going to do it. And, and that, that sucks. Excuse my language. That that's not okay, right? Because like I would rather have my eyes on you. I'd rather see that you're okay. But at least I know that if I don't see you in you know 30, 35 minutes, I know where, where to go find you. You know, and and that's hitting on both. You know, so you're working within the capacity that you're allowed to under the current like city, state, federal guidelines and regulations. So I think for listeners, this is also a call to change these processes and listen to folks who are survivors, who are in recovery, who have experienced homelessness, who are coming and saying, this is what I need right now. And it's not necessarily, I need to stop using right now. It's I need shelter, home, food, and care, right? And those two things should not be like, we're going to dangle the keys in front of you and say, you have to prove that you're substance-free before we give you dignified housing. And so, so Nikki, related to that, I know you've talked about housing first approaches and um, how we might, as a community, think about um, why do we, who decided to tie the right to housing to meeting some set and defined you know, a uh, list of requirements in order to be considered worthy of accessing something as basic human need as shelter. Yeah, it's uh, it's so interesting to me because, you know, the reality is like many people are struggling with a variety of different things, right? And it's like, 
oh, you can only come here if you stop using, or you can only come here. And sometimes it's as simple as like, you can't be here unless you have an ID. And it's like, if anybody knows what the process is like to try to get an ID when you don't have any documents and you can't like, you have to prove your, where you live. It's like, I don't live anywhere. Would you like me to get like my, uh, house I'm like trapping in like a letter that I'm like squat. Like, how do I do that? Right. Um, and so when I think about housing first, it's interesting because the reality is like, we should be giving people housing first, which is the whole concept, right? And then providing the additional supports that they need and showing up for them in meaningful ways, right? And so when I think about housing first, like we should not be requiring anything of anybody. It's like, here's your keys. Uh, like, what can I get you right now? Do you need food, sheets? Great. Uh, are you using? Great. I'm going to be back in 45 minutes to make sure you're alive, right? Um, and then you keep showing up and you build relationships with people and you help them connect and get the things that they want, right? Because for them, it may not be, I think we have this idea that, you know, we're going to house people and everybody's going to, you know, stop using and, you know, attain employment and, you know, get their children. And that may not be the goal for everybody, right? So it should be like their their goals in life, us supporting those in them and helping them stay as safe as possible, right? Um, but we have tied the right to I mean, even food, shelter, housing, to meeting these like these these essentially like structures of worthiness, right? Is what it's been put in place. And it's like, and also like we've set up all of our services and access to things for as an exchange, right? So if you do this, I will provide this. If you do that, and I'll just say for survivors of prostitution, our entire lives have been an exchange, right? And so now we just shifting to a different like mechanism of like, you know, having to meet these identified markers in order to access housing. People die. People die outside because they don't have housing every year, right? Um, people die because they don't have access to shelter and are overdosing outside. They don't have access to safe consumption sites, right? Uh, and so I think we as a community really have to like shift the way that even we're thinking about housing first. And also I, when I hear you say like dignified housing models, right? I'll share a little experience. Like, you know, we went out to look at this project that was designed to provide some solutions to Mass and Cass. Um, and they're essentially sheds, right? Um, and I'm looking at this shed and I'm like, and it's like, they have all these great services and people can use inside and all of those things are great, but they're a shed, mm. right? And I was like, so I lived in a shed, an actual shed, <laughs> and I would have preferred mine without the security, right? And mm. the metal cot and all of those things. But it's like, we we are trying to provide services in this idea of, oh, it's better than, mm. it's better than sleeping outside on the street. It's better than, and it's like, yeah, but it's still a shed. Right. And when you're sacrificing a part of your own autonomy in order to access that, it's it's both dehumanizing and offensive, I you know, and, and this is the thing I think people need to shift and I'll step on a soapbox for a second. People need to shift from this charity savior mindset of like, we are doing such good things for people to being like, everyone deserves this, right? And like, if you or your child or your family member were in this position, and maybe they are, I hope you're advocating that they have access to these things. Right. And, um, you know, the, the other piece that came up in a conversation. So we, um, 
one of our other guests this season was District 5 City Councilor Atel Hasiai, and she was talking about how there are housing projects, like you're mentioning, that do have, like, here are the keys, but you have to use the services that we have. And so you and you have to show that you're doing some type of workforce development or job training or um, X, Y, and Z thing in order to stay here, right? And the fact that we're threatening people with houselessness, again, for not doing something, again, prescribed to be defined as what success, I'm using air quotes for listeners, like success looks like, right? And so like, how do we... And we're, we're coming close to the end of our time because it flies. Um, what are some of the things that for listeners who might be residents, who might have a certain perspective on these issues that is not in alignment with the conversation that we're having, or providers, what are some of the things that you would encourage people to do right now um, as it relates to equity-based housing solutions? I think the most important thing is to change your mindset, right? When you when you see somebody and um, they are homeless, they are simply unhoused. That is the only difference between them and anybody else that you know. There is no other differences. I think that's the most important thing. You know, stop thinking about like yourself and you know what's what's wrong with the world. Just change how you view people and how you treat people. Um, you know, not every person. I I see this a lot in Worcester. Um, you know, people will take pictures of people under a bridge, and oh, these people keep harassing me for money, and and that's the wrong way to you know give them a bottle of water, just smile, wave, hi, how you doing? Like they're they're a person, and we we should treat everybody how we want to be treated. Period. It's the the oldest you know the the golden rule: just treat people how you want to be treated. And I would also add, you know, that you know advocating for housing that doesn't require you to exchange anything to be there. And when, you know, I was just hearing, a, you know, as you talked about this, the programs that you have to do X, Y, or Z, you know, I think about like when I exited the life um, and I, you know, unfortunately my path wasn't great, right? It was like through incarceration and then a shelter. And then it was, it was actually really super traumatizing and hard. Right. But I will say that it took me almost a year to stop like rocking and humming, right? Uh, because I was so traumatized. Um, and so this expectation that like, because you put me in a room, right? And it was a really gross room too. It wasn't a great one. Um, or a mat on the shelter floor that I should somehow be ready to just go out and take on the world, right? Um, so I think people need to factor in that like, we need to give people time and space, right? To be able to like, First of all, like figure out what they want, but also start to try to feel safe again, right? Um, before you can set them up with this, you know, idea that they have to find employment. The reality is, you know, employment isn't it, it isn't it isn't everything, right? I think people having access to the things that they need, and it doesn't doesn't harm us to like give people that time and space um, to decide what it is that they want and also heal. Because you know what doesn't feel good is failure, right? And so sending people out and forcing them to go get work, right? When they're not able to sustain it, they can't show up on time, they can't, you know, they can't hold a job, right? So it's like now one more failure we're laying on top of them, and then we're going to take their housing on top of it too, mm. right? And and we wonder why we have this issue with chronic homelessness and people cycling in and out of housing and in and out of housing, right? We have to shift the way that we are doing things and providing things for people, right? Um, and do it without expectation. 
Thank you. Thank you, Nikki Bell, Desiree Demos from Lyft for being on public hearing. Uh, I am your host, Joshua Croak. Thank you to listeners uh, for tuning into public hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at public hearing MA. Uh, I want to thank our incredible team. Our audio producer is Juliana DeRazio, who also made our show music. Also, thanks to Kelly Kajurik and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of this show. The work continues, Worcester. Follow along at publichearing.co.